1: Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. The crime that shocked a nation. Joseph Pushka is found guilty of Ashling Murphy's murder. Ashling is warmly remembered today by her boyfriend as a beautiful, vibrant and talented young woman.
2: Her life had a huge impact on so many of those around her and she was the epitome of a perfect role model for every little girl to look up to and strive to be.
1: In other news tonight, Israel agrees to four-hour pauses in fighting in areas of North Gaza as European and Arab leaders, including the Taoiseach, discuss the war in Paris. tonight to a developing story. The bodies of a man and a woman have been found at a house in County Clare, with Gardie treating the deaths as suspicious. Gardie were called to the scene around 2.30 this afternoon. The bodies currently remain at the scene, which has been preserved, as you can see. The Office of the State Pathologist has been called. Gardie say they are investigating all of the circumstances following the discovery. Well, next tonight, we have evil in this room. The words of the judge who presided over Joseph Pushka's trial moments after a jury found him guilty of murdering teacher Ashling Murphy as she went for a run along the Grand Canal outside Tullamore in January of last year. Mr Justice Tony Hunt also said there would be a day of reckoning for her killer who now faces a mandatory life sentence for the crime.
2: Ashley was a vibrant, Intelligent and highly motivated young woman who embodied so many great traits and qualities of the Irish people and its communities. Her life had a huge impact on so many of those around her and she was the epitome of a perfect role model for every little girl to look up to and strive to be. She was not only an integral part of our family, but she was also a huge shining light in our community, a community in which, year in, year out, she gave back to as best she could
1: Well, I'm joined to discuss this further by journalist Alison O'Connor, our courts correspondent, Deborah Naylor, Sarah Benson of Women's Aid and by Local TD, Barry Cowan, and on Skype this evening by Sean Cook, the CEO of Men's Network Ireland. And you're all very welcome to the programme. Uh, Deborah, I want to start with you. The jury didn't take very long. They didn't deliberate uh, extensively. Tell me about the moment that they came back into the court with that guilty verdict.
3: Yeah, I think you could probably describe it here as first it was incredibly tense as as it always is when a jury is returning its verdict and after that it was very emotional. Um, They returned the verdict, a unanimous one, uh, finding Josef Pushka guilty after just one hour and 54 minutes of deliberations. It was an emphatic decision. Uh, There was very little reaction from him. He dropped his head as his interpreter translated uh, the verdict for him. Um, Ashley Murphy's family were really dignified in court as they were throughout the trial. There was very little from them. Um, Her mother, Kathleen, she was clutching a a picture of Ashley in a framed photo of her, but you could see the relief in their faces. Um, Mr Justice Tony Hunt, thanked the jurors for their service. He said that they had uh, returned the right verdict in the case. and, And as you said, he said that there was evil in this room. He
1: said there was evil in this room, and we all know that he was referring to uh, Joseph Pushka. There was evil, I suppose, in what he did to Ashley Murphy. There was also evil in this story he spun about his involvement in this crime.
3: Yeah, because Joseph Pushka took the stand during this trial, um, and when it was in the middle of this trial, it was the very first time uh, we heard his claim that he had been helping Ashley on the day of her death. Uh, this never emerged before this. He, he had plenty of opportunities uh, to put that defence forward. Uh, but we heard that he, he was claiming he was also attacked. And when he took the stand, he gave an elaborate version of these events. He said he, he was along the Grand Canal that day. Uh, someone A man attacked him. And he told the story in great detail and then said it was after that that Aisling was attacked. So he claimed that he was a victim of, of a stabbing the same person that attacked Ashling, a masked man. Uh, but as the prosecution put it, he was someone who was an inveterate liar and he lied to Garthi throughout the investigation. He lied when he was, on, you know, under oath on the stand. Um, and ultimately, uh, the jury did not believe those lies.
1: And all of that must have added to the trauma that Ashling's family had endured. They also had to listen to very graphic detail about her murder, but also a part I think I find very difficult to listen to at the last moments of her life which had been witnessed.
3: Yeah, uh, I, I would have to say some of the evidence in this trial was incredibly difficult to listen to because it was, it was very graphic, it was very visceral. Um, And there was some days in court that I think, you know, were difficult for journalists to cover, so I can only imagine what it must have been like for a family to listen to. And some days, you know, I can recall the the evidence of the eyewitnesses, Jenna Stack and Aoife Marin, who came upon the scene and giving that description of seeing um, Ashley Murphy being pinned, uh, being, you know, Joseph Pushka crouching over her and she was Fighting for her life, and she left those defensive wounds. She she scraped him, and his his DNA. She left that DNA. It was found, um, you know, underneath her fingernails. Um, she put up a fight for her life, um, and of course, um, there was other days in court when her her personal belongings, including her, her bobble hat, her necklace, they were produced as exhibits. Um, her last moments, just around half an hour before she was killed, that was shown on CCTV. So there were, there were very many moments in this trial that just must have been, as the judge referred to one day, taken a superhuman strength uh, for her, her family to be able to sit through that and listen to this evidence. And we can only hope at this point that it is of some comfort to them mm-hmm. that the jury has returned that guilty verdict.
1: Yeah, and um, hopefully they did feel today that justice was served, Alison. They've learned, though, how this happened, but they have no idea why this happened. It's utterly senseless.
4: Completely senseless, but and I, but I suppose, is there any why that would comfort you in a in a circumstance such as this? Um, and yet, the absolute chatting to some friends today, the absolute random nature of it, um, I think, is something that obviously her her, you know, the what ifs is something that her family you'd imagine will surely ponder on for a very long time. Um, they are a family who have behaved with such incredible dignity. The idea that they had to be put through a trial, and as Deborah has just outlined, um, that le- that level of detail, um, I think it's it's a it's a case that just for all of those reasons, I think that has affected so many of us, and I think that just got right to the heart of of how fearful women are on a day-to-day basis. Actually, I think in the in the weeks after Ashling's murder, I think women realized how much they had internalized that sort of thing and uh, And normalized just it and normalized accepted it just as an it, everyday part of life. Just took it as an everyday part of life and I think there then was a lot of anger. I certainly felt it because you suddenly realized, you know, why should why should this be be the case. Um and as a as a mother of of teenage girls, it's something that is often on my mind um, and that fine, that very fine balance between not wanting um, your daughter to live in fear and yet you being in fear for their safety and something like we know that uh, the statistics show that a woman is far more at risk in her, in her own home but that as the family of Aisling Murphy know um, something entirely random like that, a fabulous young woman out for a run along a canal to be so savagely murdered in that way, that it can happen just like that in the blink of an eye.
1: It must be difficult, so difficult for her family and so difficult for the community, Barry Cowan. Is there still fear in that community, do you think? And will this verdict today go any way to address that fear?
2: I think the the community was no different than the country. There was shock and horror uh, after the attack and the randomness of it. To think that a, a girl could go out for a run. As people said, she only went for a run. And, and, and this terrible vista uh, awaited her. But I think the community itself is, is glad that it's over, that justice has been done. Uh, but the tragedy and the, the, the grief and the loss continues for the family. You know, the family, her parents, the Murphys, the Leonard's. they're solid, decent, hardworking people, and together with their community, who play an important role in the rearing of their children, uh you know they're in the midst of the community, whether it be music, sport, culture, education, and as her boyfriend said, she was a vibrant, highly intelligent, motivated uh, woman, and an example to to everybody who knew her and to her school community in Durrow, where she taught it's absolutely tragic uh you know today's event, as I said, thankfully that's over, and you want to I want to thank the Gardie for the work that they did and painstakingly you know, ensuring that the evidence was without doubt uh, in favour of putting this man where he deserves to be tonight. It
1: was quite overwhelming. and, and, and,
2: And put paid to the lies that he spun in court over the last number of weeks. And as, you know, we can only really appreciate and respect the family and the extended family for the dignity that they showed, which was akin to the way she lived her life too, an example to everyone.
1: To pick up on a point that Alison made, there was this visceral outpouring of grief, but it was more than grief. It was an anger as women, as you say, almost admitted to themselves that they do live with this yeah, sense it, it, it was, of, of fear and yeah, have accepted exactly. This and sense people of fear. said, that, that you know, I heard
2: you? it did, it did, it did shock me to an extent, and it shouldn't have shocked me, but it did." And that's a mm. an indication of society and where it is in relation to the difficulties that women face on a daily basis. To hear Women and friends and relatives say that, yes, when they go walk or run, they do have the keys in their hands as some form of protection. And to think that that fear is inbuilt in society was something that we had to address and, 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 and use this terrible event to bring some good out of it in, in our response, politically and socially. But I think the first job, as I said, was the shock and horror and the realisation of the fear that women feel. And for many men like me and others to realise and appreciate that. And then, for depending on your role in society, what you can do to impact uh, you know, progress in that area. And from a political perspective, you know, for the parliament to play its role in bringing about a new strategy that recognises this and, and, and addresses prevention, protection, uh, prosecution and, 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 and strategies that can help in education, that can help in the courts, that can help in society and improve the situation and improve the awareness and not take for granted some things that unfortunately many of us did.
1: Sarah Benson, we did hear the word watershed, didn't we? After this murder, was it a watershed moment? Well,
5: women's aid have been maintaining the femicide report since 1996 in this country and 263 women have died in violent circumstances. um, Since Ashley Murphy uh, was murdered, 18 more women died violently in this country. Um, at the same time that this trial was taking place, there are also three other trials taking place and three other families mm. of murdered women um, sitting in courtrooms. So on the one hand, yes, it, it had an enormous resonance. There was definitely a convergence. Um, while... Uh, approximately 13% of women who are murdered will be murdered by a stranger. It was, as I I, I won't repeat everything Alison said, but that was it. it. It tapped into something that women and girls are socialised into from birth, which is, you don't, you know, not every man will be violent, not every boy will be violent, but you don't know which one might and you have to be prepared. And, and yet there was this sense that is there no time of the day? Is there nowhere that, you know, is now safe. It was like we all
1: do certain yeah. things, don't we, sir, that we think yeah. without perhaps even thinking we do to protect yeah. ourselves. Yeah. We don't go out late at night. We yeah. if we were to go out late at night, we would go out in pairs, we wouldn't go down a dark alleyway. There's just things that you just don't even second guess. What she did is something that women do all of the time, and they don't think there's a It inevitable. exposed
5: the absolute fallacy that women can be responsible for their own safety when a perpetrator is going to seek to harm them. And I think that was what it really that's where the anger came in. It's like that this is all nonsense. This is not something women can control because we are in a society where male violence against women, not just this society, it's a global issue, is something that is so prevalent. Um, but at the same time, you know, to, to Barry's point, there are things happening now, there is legislation passing, there is uh, momentum for policy change, and the conversation is happening in a way that it hasn't happened before but it really needs not to be squandered because it could easily be, you know. I mean, I'm, you know, um, back in my 20s, Raymond Murray was murdered in my own neighbourhood. And at that time, that was a watershed. Nobody has ever found, uh, you know, and and that's 20-plus years on, so we, we can't squander this moment now.
4: I think that a wonderful part of, of Aisling's legacy will be, I think, what the, the government is doing. As Barry has mentioned, um, Justice Minister Helen McEntee, I think far more will be done than, you know, would would have been um, if, she, if she had not been murdered. But I was thinking, coming out in the car here tonight, like, how much has really changed in that culture? You know, Barry is the only man here tonight But, like, in terms of men speaking amongst themselves, how many more call men out? We should be starting these conversations in in primary and and secondary schools. Actually,
1: Alison, we were very, very conscious of that on the programme this evening, that we didn't sit around as women to discuss uh, an issue that is not within women's power to necessarily resolve. So we do actually have uh, Sean Cook from Men's Network, and you represent White Ribbon, which is a campaign that is set to engage with men and boys to have that discussion around gender-based violence towards women. It is on a spectrum. That's the first thing we need to realise, don't we? This is the extreme end of it, but there is lesser violence perpetrated every single day.
6: Well, I think there is, and I think, uh, I think there's there's a couple of points that've been made there. and attorney Sarah would have made earlier on that, that we, we shouldn't really squander the opportunity. But in terms of the work that we would be involved in, it is around encouraging um, the silent majority of men to come out and uh, and to kind of to be part of uh, an allyship, uh, to be part of it, to be a leaders in supporting and working with uh, the women's movement and women's organizations around addressing the issue of gender-based violence. And the White Ribbon Campaign has a very particular pledge, which is very much around that we would never condone, commit or remain silent in relation to uh, gender-based violence and violence against women. And our programs are very much around creating the conversations or where young men and 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 men in general can enter into a conversation that is not going to be where they are going to be judged or being judgmental or in an adversarial situation. It is around allowing them explore and reflect on the situation and their own attitudes so that they can actually become become those allies, become those champions and become those advocates alongside uh, the women and children in their lives.
1: I know you've said that there was a lot of inquiries to White Ribbon mm. following the death of Ashley Murphy. Men looking to mm. get perhaps more information or to see the work for your organisation. Did men though go further than that? Did they did they engage properly with your organisation? Was there
6: change? Certainly, like from our perspective at the time, that one of the biggest uh, challenges for us was to, just the enormity and the, and the challenges for men in general who who felt somewhat at a loss about how does one how do we respond to this how do we show solidarity how do we uh show our disgust and our uh, uh, disappointment and our horror and anger in some ways about uh, in terms of what has actually happened and what has happened over many years in terms of gender based violence in this country and across the world that what what can we do and this is the this is the big challenge um that they were ringing up saying how do i show my support how do i uh uh, step into the conversations and and we have a particular uh initiative which is called the step in uh, step up and step back initiative which is really giving men uh steps and boys on how to kind of engage in this particular conversation and it's about stepping into the conversations with the women and girls in their lives and listening to those women and hearing their fears and concerns but not only hearing that but hearing their uh, their ideas and their innovation and their uh, and their fun as well with that. And then secondly, it's about stepping up, as in b- being able to step into another conversation where you can challenge the behaviour or the attitudes or the language in which it has been used in your own environment. Now, we're not talking about going out, doing this in the middle of a bar, but in with your peer group and with your family and within your community, that you can actually challenge those behaviours and challenge those attitudes. And then we want people then to step back, to step back and listen, what we're hearing today uh, from women and from the past year in relation to this issue and, and as we've had to listen to it for, for many other instances as well that we step back from that and listen that and also we actually step back and listen to the privilege and the, the, understand the privilege that we have as well as All right.
1: men. All right, yeah. I know you just want to come back in there.
2: Yeah, it, it's the it's point you made earlier. You know, I grew up in a culture that didn't treat women appropriately um, and it's somewhat of an overhang from the past when you think of Women in crisis pregnancies were left at the gates of homes. Where were the fathers? What was done to them? Nothing was done to them. No stigmatisation on them. Uh, when I grew up, women didn't participate in sport to the levels that they do now. There's, there's, there's an avalanche, thankfully, of, of, of GA activity with, with young girls in, in, in playing fields, as it should be. I think it's, you know, if you look at education, you look at those who, who, who championed climate change and the environment are the younger generation who grew up and were educated properly and effectively to be in a position uh, to have that ambition. And I think it's our duty to ensure that the next generations grow up in a better, much better atmosphere than we did. And that, if we do nothing else as a result of this, are all those incidents that we mentioned. It's not just about one, they continue to happen, but there is some change taking place in relation to how government and how society is reacting to it. My own county, there was no, there was no domestic violence uh, centres in 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 Offaly at all. One of eight counties where there was none. Thankfully, now there is uh, progress, and there will be three in the coming months. But that in itself is, is, you know, is a poor reflection on me and others as as public representatives not to have recognised that or provided for that in the past.
1: Okay, there's just one other uh, point from this trial um, I wanted to discuss with you, Deborah. And as we said, th- the evidence in this trial was pretty overwhelming and you can see that because the jury came back with their unanimous decision so quickly and yet Joseph Pushka still pled not guilty and he still took to the the sand because ultimately in that situation given the fact that it is a mandatory life sentence there was nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. Is that something that needs to be looked at now because it did mean that the family here had to sit through a very harrowing trial?
3: I don't think that's something probably for me to say, but um, I mean, as it stands under our constitution, everyone does have a right to um, a trial before a jury. And Mr. Hunt commented on that today. He said he took no criticism with the defense run by Mr. Pushka, even though he called it, he meant the defense team, he called that a defense threadbare. And it is terribly and horribly unfortunate. that the Murphy family had to to sit through this trial in the way they did. Um, whether our legislators see fit to, to look at this, um, I, I don't know, I don't think perhaps it's something for me. a conversation for another day. I think it perhaps is. Um, we can just only hope that the Murphy family have some sense of closure tonight, mm. but ultimately closure and justice will not bring Aisling back.
1: All right, look, we're going to have to leave that conversation there for now. My thanks to Deborah, to Sarah, to Barry and to Sean. Next, the very latest on the war in Gaza as Israel agrees to humanitarian pauses. Do stay with us. The Israeli army is to begin daily four hour military pauses so people can flee northern Gaza. Meanwhile, a militant group in Gaza has released a video of two Israeli hostages, an elderly woman and a boy, amid speculation about talks to free more captives. European leaders, including the Taoiseach, have been taking part in a major conference on Gaza in Paris today. US President Joe Biden indicated he would have liked to have seen longer pauses.
2: Mr. President, are you frustrated with Prime Minister Netanyahu that he has not listened more to some of the things you have asked him to do? It's taking a little longer than I hope. It's taking a little bit longer?
1: Well, earlier I spoke to Tal Schneider from the Times of Israel for reaction to the latest humanitarian pauses and whether she thinks they may lead to the release of some of those Israeli hostages.
7: That's a big question. Uh, Hamas has has proven itself through the years never to um, comply to international law or anything like that to care about humanitarian needs. Uh, Israel has been putting in place humanitarian poses for a couple of days now. I mean, you've seen the marches of the people, you know, going south. uh,
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
7: With The assistance of Israel's military, because, you know, while the Hamas was, you know, controlling the area, they they banned the people from going to a safe zone. So now, I mean, you've seen those poses taking place actually since Sunday. So I understand the, the U.S. president has said the poses will start as of tomorrow, but, you know, basically... Israel's military was was doing those poses, and I, I suppose maybe from tomorrow, some people will be able to go, maybe more people will be able to go out. As per the Hamas, you know, there, we don't have any expectation from them. There, It's not just the Hamas, by the way, it's a terror organization, the Hamas, but there are other terror organizations like the Islamic Jihad out there and in the same region. And they are denying any type of, you know, Red Cross uh, assistance to these people who they took from their beds on a Saturday morning, you know, 240 Israelis,
1: so... Is it, if it's not going to secure the release of hostages, if you're not confident that that's going to happen, is it an acknowledgement from Israel that it has heard the pressure and the criticism from the international community about the treatment of ordinary civilians in Palestine, in Gaza specifically, and an acceptance from Israel that it was actually in breach of international humanitarian law?
7: No, as I said, Israel is a democratic country and is playing by international law from the beginning, it allowed pauses to take place in recent uh, days. Uh, as long as you know, once they took over the region, they allowed people to escape down south. So I mean, Israel is obliging by any type of international law, and it's listening to whatever it's being discussed in. Uh, you know, outside of Israel, we are not you know um, completely shun away from the needs of the of the population, but. The population I have
1: to say, was small. Many, many legal experts we've had on the program have said there's been clear breaches of humanitarian law by Israel and indeed by Hamas. That has been accepted too. Uh, Hamas today, one of their armed wings, Al Qassam Brigade, said that an Israeli soldier who had been held hostage had actually been killed by an Israeli airstrike. Are these humanitarian causes? A response to the fact that Israel may have killed some of its own hostages and perhaps a response to some of the criticism within Israel from the family members of these hostages that Netanyahu has not done enough to try and secure their release.
7: So actually, it's quite the opposite. There is criticism in Israel is against any kind of humanitarian aid because the Israeli people that are being held captive are not getting anything in return. So if you talk about the criticism from within this country, it's about you know how come you know they don't they didn't get the Red Cross, they didn't get any uh visits, food, water, medicine. Some people are elderly. There's kids. There's like thirty kids uh, held by you know by the Hamas and the Islamic Jihad. So if there's, if there's There is a criticism here. It's about Israel's government being too generous with with the way it it conducts, because we've been attacked. And and by the way, today as well, we are still attacked by rockets all over the civilian population of Israel, all over the country. And we do have 200,000 internally displaced people here who don't have homes at the moment because their homes were torched and burned and the women were raped. So things here are very, very bad okay, for us. Okay, but I and think a I lot of those people would have access to about, food, you know, the other would have side, access to water. the problem
1: remains here as well. Okay, and would have access to medical supplies, which a lot of people in Gaza wouldn't have access to. Uh, President Biden today... Israeli who today... Were abducted,
7: don't have medical supplies as well. They're being abducted without... We don't even know if they have a brief of air or anything to treat them. I mean, there's kids who their parents were murdered in front of their eyes and then they were abducted into Gaza and no one treats them. None, nobody's, you know, care about them and the entire international community doesn't even allow itself to think what about them. It's just about, you know, um, you know, those terror organizations and their own rights.
1: Okay, but President Biden did speak today to reporters and he said that he asked Netanyahu for a pause of at least three days. And there have been those who say that that is the length of pause that is necessary in order to secure the release of some of these hostages. Why is Netanyahu, why is Israel not willing to grant that?
7: So the president said no ceasefire. When you're talking about three days, you're talking about a ceasefire. In every ceasefire that Israel took under international law with the terror organization in the past, they used the ceasefire to abduct more people. We have you know, person whose name is Adar Goldin, who was abducted during a ceasefire in recent years. So the Hamas using a ceasefire to refuel, shoot more rockets, breaching a ceasefire. The only thing that Netanyahu and his government was doing at the moment is doing those poses. We are talking about couple of hours poses. I don't see in any way how this will Put us forward to release the abducted people, but it, as I said, it's because it is a democracy. Israel is not, you know, working against international law. And and um, um, some people from the international law-
1: lawyers community says that Israel has every right to protect its own people. And that does not give them carte blanche, as we know, to do what they did. Just a final question. Are you concerned at all, Tal Schneider, that Joe Biden, that America, your staunchest ally, is getting more and more frustrated with the response from Israel? I mean, we saw that clip today where he spoke to reporters where he said, it is taking a little longer than I had hoped when he was speaking about the ceasefire.
7: Well, relationship between Netanyahu and Biden was not its best to begin with. But uh, since the war began, he's been calling the, Netanyahu every day, and he, he he came here to show his support. The Secretary of State showed his support. There is one thing that everybody should be, um, you know, on the same ground, which is you can't have a terror organization terrorizing an entire country and their own people. So this is a thing, something that everybody agree, even if when they have their disagreements about, you know, tactics here and there. But, you know, as I said, the poses have begun already a okay. couple of days ago and people are marching. I hope you've seen the footage of, you know, today they had 80,000 people marching down south. This is something that Israel called for from the beginning of this war. Okay. No one wants to see kids being killed on either side, kills in civilians, of course, on other side.
1: All right. Tal Schneider from The Times of Israel, thank you for taking the time to speak to us here this evening. Thank you. Well still here with me in studio is journalist Alison O'Connor and I'm also joined now by independent TD Cahill Berry and John Reynolds, an associate law professor from Maynooth University. I'm going to come to you first Cal. So is the focus now really on the hostages or what do you think has been Israel's motivation for agreeing to these humanitarian pauses?
8: Yeah very much so. The the focus has been on the hostages from day one really Um, and the motivation for the humanitarian pauses um, I guess there's pressure building on Israel both internally from the Israeli public because Netanyahu's government is very unpopular but also externally, With 240 hostages approximately in Gaza from a number of different countries. So a lot of countries are putting pressure on the Israelis particularly the US as well just to provide these humanitarian pa- uh, pauses with the possibility and the hopeful possibility there'll be a small trickle of hostages being released maybe next week.
1: Is that what you would expect at this point? Is there a behind the scenes a deal? The pauses come, the hostages are released?
8: Absolutely, you start with small steps. And, and the hostages, unfortunately, they'll be used for two reasons at the moment. First of all, as human shields to prevent certain buildings from being bombed. But secondly, as bargaining chips. And these hostages, unfortunately, will be traded in, in return for small humanitarian pauses. And we'll see that probably kicking off in earnest probably in the back end of next week.
1: I mean, Carl uh, says there that one of the main focuses here has been the hostages. Another has been the eradication of Hamas. Um, the background to all of this, generals, is that the fighting is actually intensifying, isn't it, around Gaza City?
9: Yeah, I mean, it's been getting worse, as we've seen. You know, the uh, first warnings that started coming out of the of the UN, from officials in the UN... One week into the conflict, we're warning already at that point about an unfolding genocide, and it's only got worse every week uh, as we've seen since then. And the the I mean, it's really just um, incredible to see the the scale and the severity uh, of how it's unfolded over the last few weeks. Um, the point that the person you interviewed there made about Israel being absolutely in compliance with with international law in all of this, I mean, it's it's just simply not. Credible, and I don't think there's any international lawyer anywhere who would take that view seriously. Um, the you know the the level of destruction, displacement, and death uh, of of civilian life that we've seen in in recent weeks is is um, is unprecedented. I mean, if you look at the numbers, and it's you know terrible to to have to um, think about it in in these terms, but more civilians killed now in. 30 days in in Gaza, than have been killed in 600 days by Russia in its war in Ukraine, and you know it's really you know that's that's the level of of um, of destruction that we're talking about.
1: What was very interesting today, Alison, was that this announcement about the humanitarian pauses didn't actually come from within Israel. It came from America. They are the country that announced it. Is that do you think an effort by Joe Biden to? reassert himself as the president and as the president of the country that has real influence here in the Middle East?
4: Yeah, but I think it's always, like, traditionally the Americans were always very strong allies of Israel. But I think with even, with what has been happening in the last couple of weeks, that I think the, 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 Joe Biden is coming under pressure from from a lot of the American public, who just like us are really disturbed by what they're seeing on their on their television screens. I, I don't know if you saw that BBC report last night, where the reporter went in, and I mean, together it was just it was extraordinary. It was like some sort of, I mean, the the absolute and utter destruction. So I think so I think
1: he was in alongside yeah. the army, and there was exactly North, North exactly and and it was been yeah. absolutely raised.
4: But I also think that maybe. Um, it was a way, you were saying it, the announcement didn't come from Israel, but I think the announcement coming from the States also is a way of, of the Americans trying to, to make sure this, that this does happen. You know, you have to look at it that way. It's a story in The Guardian this evening that, um, that Net, Netanyahu rejected, um, you know, ha, that Hamas offering uh, hostage deals uh, both before that the Israelis went in and there have been efforts since, you know, so it's hardline the whole way.
1: Um, to Hamas, the Taoiseach was speaking this evening in Paris and he said, look, you know, we have to be conscious I suppose, of double standards here. If there is to be a ceasefire, it has to be respected on both sides. What are the chances of Hamas respecting a ceasefire if that were to be agreed, Carl?
8: I would say either side. So if Hamas want to launch their own unilateral ceasefire, it wouldn't be respected by the Israelis. And similarly, if the Israelis decided on a unilateral ceasefire, it wouldn't be respected by, by Hamas either. So we need a, a joint deal, basically. We need a broker. Like Qatar at the moment and Egypt are very, very active from a hostage negotiating point, if you And This goes back to your early point. If you start small with some hostage exchanges, uh, with some humanitarian pauses, you can work towards building bigger things like ceasefires, proper ceasefires thereafter.
1: Uh, one of the points made by John Kirby today from the uh, National Security Council, who actually I think announced these humanitarian pauses, was that he had concerns that Hamas would prevent or try and stop um, innocent civilians from leaving northern Gaza to, to go south and try and find whatever level of safety is available for them there is there truth in that do you think
8: yeah it's a possibility absolutely um, we've seen some footage um of an IED a roadside bomb going off um, from a previous evacuation down towards a Rafa crossing but bear in mind um, there's always a war of words and you should believe nothing you hear and only half of what you see particularly on, on, on social media so it is a possibility but unproven as yet
1: we talked there John about this video that has been uh, released by Islamic jihad uh, based in uh, Gaza of two hostages i think it's a man and a woman and a younger boy do you take something positive from that the fact that that video which shows them alive and well has been released
9: yeah i mean it's you know it's very hard to know obviously we can't know what the intentions are behind that but uh, the accounts that we have from hostages that were released did uh, speak to the the treatment being okay and uh the conditions being okay the clearly the palestinian armed groups their motivation here is a a, a prisoner swap they're taught, they've been offering an, an everyone for everyone deal the families in israel we know have asked the israeli government for a few weeks now to pursue that the israeli government are saying absolutely they're not they're not going to do that uh Do you think he has
1: felt that pressure from the families within Israel who have been so vocal in their criticism of him?
9: Well, I think... Netanyahu, you mean?
1: Yes, and the families of the hostages. Yeah,
9: I mean, I think, you know, some of the the language in the wording that he and other officials have used have been quite telling, which has been that, of course, we're concerned about the hostages, we want to bring them back and so on, but he's... The the wording has a lot of the time being this is part of the mission or Mm -hmm. part of the operation and then it's the constant reference back to Hamas to destroying the um, infrastructure to you know a lot of this uh, absolutist language about you know we're not concerned about precision it's all about damage eliminating Gaza levelling it to the ground making sure there will be no Gaza left at the end of this I mean some of the the language has been so strong from uh, Israeli leaders in a way that we haven't seen in previous wars and assaults on, on Gaza and that's why the um, critique that a lot of UN officials and international lawyers and their analysis that they've presented now has been talking about an unfolding genocide in a way that we haven't had in previous rounds of wars on Gaza in, in the past.
1: And, and what is genocide? What is the definition of it?
9: The today? definition of genocide is the, uh, uh, a, a series of acts carried out, and those acts can be killing, physical killing, causing harm, uh, or creating conditions of life that are essentially unlivable as uh, so a starvation cutting off electricity fuel and so on those acts carried out for the intent with the intent to a- destroy a population group in whole or in part and here you know that um that, that is the argument that, that's being made now that you have that intent is there very much you can see it and hear it and read it in the statements that the Israeli leaders are, are making the conflations between civilians and combatants, the statements that there is no there are no civilians in in Gaza, that even the President of Israel has, has is on the record as saying there are no civilians. It's the entire nation is responsible and we can't uh, um, give too much cre- credence to this combatant civilian distinction. And so that that kind of language combined uh, that shows an intent to destroy uh, in whole or in part, combined with the, the acts of the, the, the mass bombardments and airstrikes and killings that um, is uh, leading UN officials, including Craig, Craig Mogapur, the, the UN senior human rights official recently who said, you know, normally intent is the most difficult part to prove, but we have, you know, so many statements. Even now. though
1: they would obviously say that they have their right to self-defense and that is what they're engaged in. Um, just to one other point, Cahill, um, there was this international conference in Paris today. Was that really quite undermined when we had this announcement from the United States, where we reminded that really the United States, as was An guitar, but the United States are the power players here?
8: Yeah, well, it's a start. Uh, the French would fence themselves as players in the Middle East as well. And that's the position they've had for a while. But uh, was it a coincidence? Was it deliberate? Uh, who knows? But I think the key message here is that only phase one of the Israeli ground offensive has been complete. Yes, so phase one is the encirclement of Gaza City. Phase two is going to be much more dangerous. That's the when the Israeli army moved deeper into Gaza City. Street fighting, tunnel fighting, it's going to be uh, pretty pretty grim.
1: What an absolutely frightening thought on that point. We're going to leave that conversation for now. My thanks to Alison, to Cal, and to John. Next, the very latest on the Apple tax ruling. That 13 billion. Why does it matter? That might seem kind of obvious, uh, but what does it all mean? Do stay with us. highest court is set to throw out the original ruling in Ireland's long-running legal dispute over taxes paid by Apple. In an opinion, an advisor to the court says the original ruling featured errors in law. The advice is not binding, but it is highly influential. I'm joined by Lorcan Allen from the Business Post to explain all of this and why it matters. Lorcan, we're going to need a little bit of an ABC here, so let's just go back to the, the core issue at stake
10: here. Okay, so all of this that we've been hearing about today goes back to 2013 when the US Senate or US Congress was investigating Apple and how much tax it paid. uh, Or didn't pay. Or didn't pay, exactly. I mean, at the time, the company was paying less than 2% on billions and billions of dollars it was making in profits. And when he was sitting before a US Senate committee, Tim Cook, the chief executive of Apple, made the comment that the company was able to do this because it had a tax incentive arrangement with Ireland. Now, this piqued the interest of the European Commission and uh, Margaret Vestager, who was the Competition Commissioner at the time, launched a formal investigation into Ax- Apple's tax affairs here in Ireland and specifically how the company routed money into its Irish companies and how those, ta- those profits were taxed or not taxed. That investigation went on from three years, between 2014 and 2016, and ultimately, as we all know, the EU Commission found that Uh, Apple had received legal state aid from the Irish government and gave this famous ruling that the the tech company had to pay Ireland 13 billion euros in unpaid taxes.
1: So they said the period that they were here between, I think it was 2003 and 2014, wasn't it? That they had underpaid their tax liability in Ireland by 13.1 billion. But Apple disagreed and so did the Irish government.
10: Exactly. And like all of these rulings the first thing that they did was they appealed this uh, to the european courts Uh, and this case went before the european general court Uh, after uh, the case was heard in 2020 that court ruled uh, that the european commission had failed to legally prove essentially that apple had actually you know not not paid enough tax here in ireland and it threw out the the investigation by the european commission Uh, eventually the european commission decided to appeal that decision to the highest court in europe which is where we are today. And we're not at the final decision of the European Court of Justice, but we are at a very important milestone in that. So the Advocate General issued an opinion this morning where he outlined uh, his his reading of the case facts, as it were. And he, was and he said he-
1: there was errors of law made in yeah, that judgment.
10: Heavily, heavily supportive of the European Commission's position, I would say, from my reading of the document. He believes that the... The EU General Court um, missed a lot of things uh, that the, in the European Commission's um, arguments. And ultimately, his recommendation is that this case should go back to the European General Court. It should be reopened, the case, and they should have a, a new assessment of the facts, which from an Irish perspective is not good news, I would say.
1: There is a possibility there's a reassessment of the facts and that it's appealed again. I mean, do we know where the end point in this is?
10: Yeah, we are years from the end point of this being held. If this does, so it will be May next year probably before the ECJ gives its final ruling on all of this. Um, But this has
1: given us the direction of travel, doesn't it? We assume this is what the ECJ are going to find. Yeah. It needs to go back, it needs to be reopened. We need to hear this.
10: Exactly. And we assume so that we'll say in May next year that the ECJ ECJ does say that this case should go back to the EU general court and it should be reopened then that process will begin again. That will be probably another year, maybe more of legal argument, all the facts will have to be re-examined. And whatever the outcome of that new case again is, or new ruling, that will almost certainly be appealed by either the Commission or Apple and Ireland again, to the ECJ once again. So. I mean, estimates have said that could be the end of this decade uh, by the time there is a final, final ruling or settlement on the Apple tax case.
1: OK, so there's some very, very rich lawyers in the world uh, because of this case. In terms of Ireland's involvement here, obviously uh, Apple took the decision to appeal this and Ireland really kind of went along and supported them. What potential damage does this do to Ireland's reputation?
10: I, I think this is very significant damage uh, Kira, to, to Ireland's tax uh, reputation as a, t- a tax haven as it's been often uh, argued by countries I mean uh, you know this goes back to you know US Congress looking at multinationals and where they were hiding profits offshore and not paying profits uh, tax on profits in the US the European Commission was also making uh, quite a significant investigations in in some of these areas and Ireland again and again came up as a location where multinational companies were creating tax structures to help them avoid paying tax and lower their tax bills. And um, the so-called double Irish was very well-known tax structure. All of that was closed off by the Irish government. That doesn't exist anymore. A lot of those loopholes were closed off in 2013 and 2014 after the European Commission started its investigation into Apple. And um, so, you know, the, the tax corporate tax system globally has been tidied up quite a lot, but I mean, you know, all of this, this, this week, it just kind of brings back those um, noises about Ireland and acting as a conduit, I suppose, for multinationals to avoid paying tax.
1: Does it in any way put FDA off coming into Ireland?
10: I think it's not helpful if you're the Ida and you're trying to attract multinationals, particularly new multinationals, to come and invest here in Ireland. I mean, they would be worried about their reputation if they were to be saying, "Oh, well, you're only going to Ireland because you're looking for tax loopholes." I think that's less true than it was a decade ago. As I said, the, the, the tax loopholes have been largely, uh, you know, closed off because of changes in the OECD tax system as well as the Irish tax system. But um, you know, it's not it's not helpful for the Irish. Uh, text. Uh, trying uh, try to make our argument to attract companies come okay. here.
1: All right, uh, thank you for coming in just so late. I know you've had a long day; it's much appreciated. Uh, that's it from us. Our program is available as a podcast. We'll see you back here on Monday. Good night.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands.